This is Gardner Campbell from Baylor University in Waco, Texas, and I'm very excited today to be speaking with Robert Darden, who's an associate professor of journalism here at Baylor University, and Bob Maravich in Chicago. Bob Maravich, the writer of the Black Gospel Music blog. We're going to be playing some records today. I think that's going to be a, a listening party as we hear some of the best gospel music that you've never heard from some obscure groups on obscure labels that have been saved from that obscurity and preserved for future generations with the Black Gospel Music Restoration Project here at Baylor University. So good morning to Robert and Bob. Good morning. Good morning. I want to get right to the music, gentlemen, if that's all right with you, and I think an appropriate one for the recording time we're doing right now. We're actually uh, recording this early in the morning. This is the D.C. Christian Harmonizers and a track called Great Getting Up Morning. Now, I, w- I want you guys to set some context here for me because, as I understand it, there are several groups using the name Christian Harmonizers, and what they would do is personalize it with either the lead singer or the location. So already we're into a kind of a, a regional and very particular kind of group title. And then it's on a, a label called North American, which I, I've never even heard of. So can you talk a little bit about where this kind of music would have come from or how this group might have been uh, known regionally? Just anything at all that comes to mind. Uh, one of the things that uh, I've always been fascinated with with gospel groups is that they do uh, pay a special attention to location. You don't hear of, you know, the Rolling Stones of England or the Beatles of England or anything like that, but you will hear of the D.C. Christian Harmonizers or the so-and-sos of Tulsa, uh, Oklahoma. Um, and there were, there were you, you're right, there were a lot of Christian Harmonizers groups. It was a fairly common uh, quartet name. And this group obviously wanted, had associated themselves with the Washington, D.C. area. I, th- I think they only made one record, as far as I know. And the other fun thing about it is, while the group might be geographically named, very few of the members would often even be from Washington, D.C. They would have come more often from the South. And on this particular track, you can hear the real roots of the song, which is an ancient spiritual. And that's part of what's fun about finding these tracks. All of these influences come together in an urban setting. And as I understand it, this song has also been recorded or was also recorded by Mahalia Jackson and the Righteous Brothers. Did you find this stuff crossing over into a more mainstream blue-eyed soul context as well? I didn't. I wasn't familiar with the Righteous Brothers version, but I do love the Mahalia Jackson version. I actually like this one better because I think it's a little bit closer to the roots of the song. Yeah, it was one of those uh, spirituals that did get picked up by gospel. You know, in the very, very early days of gospel, there weren't that many gospel songs to sing. They were writing them, so they tended to, quartets or groups or choirs, tended to adapt spirituals as their first uh, uh, gospel pieces. And the quartet community tended to carry them over the years, and, continue, and there's quartets that continue to incorporate uh, modified spirituals, if you will, into the repertories. Well, what I'd like to do now, Robert and Bob, is play the song. Let's listen to it together, and then when we come out of the track, uh, tell us what it is that really grabs you about the arrangement, about the performance. Uh, we'll, we'll just have some fun thinking about the music. These are the D.C. Christian Harmonizers' Great Getting Up Morning. Savior, Fire away, Fire away. Fire away. Fire away. Fire away. 
Great Getting Up Morning, the D.C. Christian Harmonizers of Washington, D.C., coming in about 1967. Now, here in the studio in Waco, I saw Robert Darden playing some air bass. So t- tell, us what you're, tell us what you're keying into when you hear that song, Robert. Well, why I like this particular track, among the many things I like about it is, under that wonderful walking bass and the noodling guitars and horns behind that, you could do the karaoke and drop all of the instrumental accompaniment out and do this a cappella, and it would still be thrilling. Again, although this is an urban setting, a number of the members may or may not have been from D.C., I still hear those southern shouting roots on the song. So, Bob Maravich, when you hear that song, what are you listening to? What what really gets you going with the music? Well, it's funny because I was thinking of uh, that that must be their their B track. Uh, Oftentimes when quartets would get up on a stage, they would have two songs that they could sing in a program. They would sing a slow slow song, that was their A, and then they did their fast, or what they call their drive song, and that was B. And that that would be their B song that would really get the uh, the crowd going and up on their feet and clapping their hands. And there is always this myth of quartets trying to outdo one another on a program. And, and if you believe that myth, you would say that this was the, the track, this was the rec- uh, performance that they would bring out on the program that would really get the crowd so that they would sort of uh, uh, one-up their next competition. Uh, now, if you ask a lot of quartets, they say, well, that's just a myth. We just want to have a good program. So you never know. what, what you, you choose to believe which, which one. I I'm leaning towards the myth in this one. I, there is just <laughs> enough. Is, when they get to their heart of hearts in there, you always want to be the one to walk out with the people jumping up and then to, uh, have them remember you so that the next time the love offering goes around, maybe you put an extra quarter in. So, I would agree with you. <laughs> so, so, Bob Maravich, tell me a little more about this uh, custom of putting a slower and more obviously devotional, I guess, uh, song on the A side and then saving the drive for the B. I would think it would almost be the other way around, but what's the, what's the cultural context here? Oh, you know what? I, I'm thinking of live performances when I say A and B as opposed to sides of a record. Um, so I stand corrected there. It, what it is is that when, when you would have a program, you might have as many as a dozen or 15 or 20 quartets all in the same program. And so they would uh, get ready two songs because they might only have 10 minutes each. So their first song or their A song uh, when they got up on the stage would be a slow devotional song, something just to kind of maybe uh, minister to the people, get them involved, and then they would come down on their B song or their drive song that would be the real upbeat, high tempo, uh, get people up on their, their seat and start clapping so that when they leave the stage, it's on fire, and the next group has to come in and try to, try to top them. There's a great story out of the uh, Tony Hilbert's book on the different gospel artists playing at the Apollo during the all-gospel shows, and they would, uh, he would stack them up with the big names, and each one, just about the time they'd be going, then it would be time for the next act. And he would make them all sit up on the stage and politely clap along. Well, finally, one of the artists uh, goes way over, probably the Ward sisters or something, and he pulls them all aside and starts yelling at them and saying, I don't care what this Mr. Holy Spirit says, you're going to do 15 minutes. Yes, there was a program in Chicago about a year ago where uh, the, the MC got up and said, now I know you're not all going to get the Holy Spirit today, so uh, if you, unless you really have the Holy Spirit, try to hold it back. <laughs> so when we're listening to the musical arrangement here, I'm hearing lots of things that sometimes are actually quite surprising. The electric guitar, for one thing. I'm hearing stuff that sounds like Lightning Hopkins or uh, that kind of uh, up-tempo Chicago blues in there. Do you hear a lot of commercial or secular kinds of threads in this music as well? Well, in this particular song I am, and it's 
it's not uncommon by the time 1967 rolls around, the um, Stax Volt had its own gospel label for a few years. That, that's Chalice, right, Bob? Yes, it is. And uh, you listen to some of those on, on, a, on a few of them. That's Booker T and the MGs providing the accompaniment in the background. And it gets more and more sophisticated. And part of what the uh, reaction against gospel was at that point, that after the death of King, that it's sounding more and more like rhythm and blues or soul and less and less like gospel. Uh, I know a lot of electric guitarists uh, will credit Charlie Christian as sort of being the pioneer of, of uh, electric guitar in, in uh, pop music. And I think for a lot of gospel artists, Howard Carroll, who I believe mm-hmm. is still alive, mm-hmm. a guitarist for the Dixie Hummingbirds, he started to really use the electric guitar in a way uh, that uh, many many rock artists would later. So it wasn't just accompaniment or a couple of strums or whatever, but it was really using some interesting riffs that, as you heard in this particular song, it, and as, as Professor Darden mentioned, it's, it sort of carries over, so it starts to pick up more and more riffs until it really is indistinguishable from rock. Well, let's listen to another drive track, as I now know I should be <laughs> calling it. Uh, this is a track called He's a Friend of Mine on Sacred Sound with the Sensational Sunset Paraders. This one in particular, it seems to me, has got a very lively sound to it. It reminds me a little bit of the one o'clock jump at uh, certain points. And I'll be real curious to hear what Robert and Bob have to say about this. Sensational Sunset Paraders, He's a Friend of Mine.
So, Bob Maravich, when you listen to that track, is it is it way off base to hear even maybe a little Count Basie in there, some, a little bit of a big band feel, a little bit of a jump? We were talking about the guitar work be, uh, just a minute ago, and that's what strikes me about this particular recording is that's a real Howard Carroll sort of uh, type of riff where it just kind of comes in and it just grabs you. So as much as the music uh, and the singing grabs you, so does that great guitar work. So when these guys are playing this guitar work, are they playing for for their fellow musicians? Would would other musicians be watching them and trying to cop their licks the way you would with a with a different kind of a band? How, uh, is that layered into the performance as well? You better believe it. Absolutely, they would all be all the guitarists would be out in the audience, be watching what what he's doing to, to pick it up uh, and use it themselves, uh, because there is a very much of a of a collegiality among gospel musicians, quartet musicians. They they're interchangeable. A lot of times, uh, if if the Sunset Paraders court, uh, guitarist couldn't make a gig, they'd bring somebody else in, uh, and that individual uh, should be able to do those same riffs in the in the way that the original guitarist does. How much of the performance is actually shaped by the writer of the song? Uh, Kenneth Morris wrote this. He was born in New York, came to Chicago. He was originally a jazz musician. Would would that be influential at all, or are these songs coming in as they're written, just kind of blank slates or clay, I guess, for the musicians to do with however they like? Well, I've got some of the uh, Kenneth Morris songbooks. He's a good Chicago boy, and he even visited the old uh, building where it used to be. And they're like a lot of music from the sacred context, it will have the lyric and it will have the melody line. But since there's no Xerox machines and they're not going to buy 20 copies, they probably didn't learn this from the sheet music. They probably learned it from hearing another band do it. Or maybe one guy knew it and played it through and gave them the lyrics and they ran through it. And even when Morris writes, he leaves large spaces for the improvisation, both vocally and instrumentally. So this might or might not be something exactly like what he had in mind when he was thinking. Would it, when it, is it going to be roughly the same tempo, or, or could it be just wildly different? I would guess this one's wildly different. This sounds like a house record to me. This is the one they would say for one of their own shows, and uh, the lead singer would identify Sister Flute somewhere and sing to her until she jumped up and got happy, and the rest of the crowd jumped up and got happy, that you would save this for one of these cl- closing nights at a small Birmingham church. And, and uh, gospel music, almost by definition, uh, was never really meant to be played exactly the way it was written. You mentioned the clay. I think that's exactly right. And particularly in Kenneth Morris's point, he would write the music out. He was one of those who, who knew music. He could transcribe. He could write. Uh, he, could, he could score music. But um, it was never really, it was just a, a template. And the, the singer or quartet or group, whoever was working on it, was responsible for putting it into their own style so that no two recordings or no two performances of the same song would sound the same. So now comes a kind of a business question. If they're not really getting it off the sheet music, if they're probably not going and listening to other records, although I guess they might be, but they're really learning it from a kind of performance tradition, how did Kenneth Morris make money on this? How did the uh, group itself make money on this? Well, that, that is a big question, too. I mean, the uh, Kenneth, Kenneth Morris made money on on the song folios and the uh, the, the booklets and the sheet music that uh, that Robert mentions, um, and uh, but what has happened over the years is that as time has passed, individuals have forgotten that maybe Kenneth Morris wrote that song, and so they think it's public domain and it's recorded again, and no one. I mean, they call it public domain, so there's no royalties given out. And that has been a source of uh, uh, big concern in the gospel music industry today. 
There are a number of gospel songs that suddenly show up as public domain on songs in the year 2010, and somebody eventually will hear it and say, wait a minute, Daddy wrote that. In fact, yeah, as a gentleman I knew, uh, uh, Eugene Smith, one of the original Roberta Martin singers, he wrote, I know the Lord will make a way, oh yes, he will. And I've seen that as public domain, and I would say, I know public domain, I know where he lives. Public <laughs> domain was, up until recently, very much alive, and, and kind of looking forward to some royalties. <laughs> Outside of Kenneth Morris and uh, maybe Herbert Brewster, uh, very few of the people made a whole lot of money from the songwriting, I would guess, and except for the ones that were, uh, were recorded by Mahalia. Uh, maybe the Ward sisters are just uh, the money had to come from other places for a lot of them. Right, and, and I know there was also some discussion, and, and this may be getting into too much of the business aspect of it, but um, an arrangement of, so for example, he's a friend of mine, Kenneth Morris. If the If the quartet and I'm not saying this is what happened with the Sunset Paraders, but any particular group could say, well, I, I rearranged it such that it's really an original arrangement, uh, and and therefore the whole issue of royalties was a little confused uh, at that point. Not that the uh, record labels were paying them much <laughs> anyhow. No. <so. laughs> no. I mean, was it the case that there would be people like managers claiming credit for authorship and taking their cut off the top that way, the way, uh, oh, I don't know, even a DJ like Alan Freed would do on something like Chuck Berry's Maybelline, or be finding people kind of stepping in to take credit maybe where credit's not due? I would think that not just in gospel, but in rock and roll and soul and R&B, and it's probably happening still today. Yeah, and in fact, there's a, a record label that has a lot of gospel on it where the uh, record label owner is listed as a co-author of a lot of songs that clearly he did not write. Well, so we're getting into some nice complexities here, mm-hmm. complexities having to do with authorship, complexities having to do with the transmission of the culture and performance practice. Of course, business and the bottom line is always in there. Even if you're singing gospel music, somebody has got to eat. Somebody's going to have to get paid. And also the idea that gospel music, while we key in on the vocals, I think, a lot, it, there's a rich instrumental tradition here as well. I want to play another track now and get you both to listen to the instrumental play in here and talk about that when we come back from it. This one is pretty striking. It's on the MJ label. It's the All-Star Gospel Singers. It's a tune that has been sung by a number of artists, Woody Guthrie, Johnny Cash, uh, many others as well. But it's got some quite interesting instrumental effects, and I'd be very curious to hear what you all have to say about it. It's a track called This Train is Bound for Glory. Carol! 
have to ask Bob about the group because I wasn't familiar with them before this. But the song, I first heard it by Sister Rosetta Tharp, and I hear that kind of guitar-driven propulsion to it. I didn't know Woody Guthrie did a version. And I must say that uh, all I know about the group is, is that particular recording. It's the only one I've ever seen of theirs. Uh, I think on the other side is a, a, a tribute to Martin Luther King, which may well have, again, uh, been their only record that they might have pressed maybe 500, if that, and carried around to their programs. And once they were sold out, they were sold out. I do love, I think, one of the few times in all of the gospel music history, a acoustic bass solo in the middle of that. I just love that. Yeah. Yeah, how, how gospel com- funk. <laughs> well, exactly. And how common is it to have a kind of an instrumental break? Did, did folks feel like that would kind of pull you out of the spirit, or was that just all part of it? I can't think of too many... Bob, perhaps you can jump in. Uh, We keep talking about Harold Carroll, who I did get the interview for my book on gospel music and civil rights recently. Uh, Beyond him, not many, until the late 1960s. It's just, maybe you're right. Maybe they thought that would detract from the the spirit or the the most of the guitarists also sang as well. Um, Mostly in the early days, it was just for rhythm. Right, And, and the only examples I can think of offhand would be the Pentecostal church recordings where um, the music, sometimes the singing sometimes would stop and they would just play out and let individuals just have a good time in the music and the spirit. And, and uh, you, you'll pick that up on some recordings, uh, particularly with the uh, Southwest Michigan State Choir, the Church of God in Christ. Sometimes they would just stop and, and play the music. And now there's a thing, well, it's called the Chicago Bump, but it's, it, that's a more recent term for it. And it's that real high frenetic uh, instrumental s- music that happens sometimes when, uh, particularly in, in Pentecostal and Holiness churches, when they feel the presence of the Holy Spirit in the room, the musicians will start to kick into a high gear uh, instrumental piece where it just continues on and, and people stand up and shout and walk and, and run and fall out. And uh, that will continue until somebody you know, sort of stops it or, or slows it down, usually the MC. Occasionally you will hear that on some of the recordings, but my guess is that a lot of uh, the uh, studio recordings did not allow that because, first of all, you only had three and a half minutes anyway on a record. And if you if you got into the spirit, you might, you might build the session. Um, but uh, in some of the live recordings, you certainly could pick up on that, particularly in the 60s. Yeah, that's when your the meter is running. You don't want the organist to keep playing and playing. When I went to Al Green's church in Memphis, uh, it was a three-and-a-half-hour service, and they interrupted the preacher seven times with either the bass player or the keyboard player doing this uh, kind of do-do-do-do-do-do, and it's like he couldn't stop his left hand. And they would all jump up and dance, and finally the preacher would get them all sat back down again, and he'd preach for four or five minutes and get in a rhythm, and all of a sudden it would be the bass player who would jump up and do-do-do-do-do-do-do, and everybody would jump up again. And, you know, that's expensive in the studio to do that. That's right. <laughs> So tell me a little bit about how a song like that would get arranged and who would come up with the idea, hey, let's let the electric guitar do the part of the train whistle in there. Is this something that would come out of a kind of a an improv there uh, at the date uh, before the red light was on and they started recording? Or is this something that they would have worked out really carefully over 10 or 15 performances and then committed that to wax? How might that have gone? Well, you know, it's yes and yes. Uh, I would say most of it is through rehearsals and just deciding how they're going to do it. But then sometimes uh, there are instances where the group on the spot will get into the spirit and change the arrangement. Um, a great example of that uh, is the Cosmopolitan Church of Prayer in Chicago did a song called He Will Work It Out. And uh, Diane Williams, who is the lead singer, 
uh, it was a big hit in its day, and uh, she started to rap. She started to do a whole line, and it was not in the arrangement. It was, they had never rehearsed it. The uh, choir director, uh, Alan Cathay, is sort of like, where is she going with this? And they almost wanted to stop the recording session because it was right on the spot in the Savoy Studios, and they decided to let her go, and it turned out that that particular spontaneous rap uh, sold the song. And a lot of the quartets, which is more of my area of expertise, when you're spending 250,000 miles a year in the same 1960 Oldsmobile, you spend a lot of time perfecting the harmonies. But once you get in performance or once you get into on the studio, then I think it's kind of the Phil Spector thing. Everything's arranged except for a couple of musicians, and it would might be the guitar player who's just playing behind. Because often, until uh, they get to the studio, someone didn't have an instrumentalist, and they certainly didn't often have the same session players every time. You never knew who sometime was going to show up at the Peacock or Savoy Studios. So when the fans would purchase one of these records, did they expect they were going to be getting a souvenir of the live performance that they had really enjoyed, or did they think that they were getting something that was a little more carefully put together, something more like a record that they would you know, be buying from a different kind of an artist? Well, I'm guessing, uh, Bob may know more than I do on this, that we don't start getting live recordings in gospel music to way late. And the records would have been two and a half minutes of more of more controlled. The studio engineers were often white guys who owned the record company and may or may not have made them feel uncomfortable. Bob? Yeah, I, I agree. I think uh, for, particularly in the major labels, it would have been very, very much a controlled environment uh, on some of the independent labels where the artists may themselves have brought the tracks over or invented their own record label uh, for the process of or for the purpose of selling records. It may have been more of a, a kind of a church basement recording that they did just simply to sell as a souvenir, as something to make some money um, and to give to the local uh, gospel announcers, uh, knowing that it, it would not necessarily exactly capture the live performance. I always think that artists sound better live than they do on record, um, but at least it would give some semblance of their sound and at least something to remember people by so when they come back to town, uh, they'll have an even bigger crowd. You know, that brings up a quick point that I want to ask Bob about while I have him. I'll take advantage of, of the opportunity. All of the, the great books that talk about all the great 100 songs, 145s you need to own, and uh, the Dave Marsh 1,000 greatest songs of, of popular music, there's very few gospel recordings on there. And all the guys that I've ever talked to are big gospel fans. But their point is, it's very, very difficult to get these spectacular performances, which is where the heart and the soul of all this is, anyhow, on two and a half minutes of vinyl in a little tiny cramped studio in Cincinnati. There are very yeah. few, and Bob, what do you think, great, you know, great I, performances on record. To this day, um, because in my, uh, I, I'm very much a devotee of the traditional and the, the vintage, but I also, with the Black Gospel blog, review new projects. And I'll be listening to an artist today and hear him on stage and think, that is an amazing performance. Wow. And then I get home and I listen to the CD and I said, that doesn't sound like the same group to mm -hmm. me. Mm -hmm. Because of, of the when you get into the studio, some of those, uh, the, the anxieties, the nerves of, of recording that some artists, particularly new ones, uh, may not have recognized that they sort of 
I would say kind of don't let themselves get comfortable enough in front of the microphone. So that performance that you heard on stage, and I think this is, goes to answer your question why sometimes the recordings weren't as, as powerful as the, the live performances, was that they, were, they didn't feel as comfortable uh, you know, emoting uh, in, in, the, in, the, in the studio that, as they did in the performance you have, where you have an audience and they're listening and they're into your music and they're shouting and yelling and, and waving, and you don't have that in the studio, and suddenly you know, the, the, the inspiration isn't there and, and it feels uh, plastic uh, mm-hmm. compared to the live performance. I keep hearing as I do interviews with the old the old crew, and they talk about, oh, if you could have only heard the Blind Boys of Mississippi with Archie Brownlee in person, not a single one of their records does them justice. You know, and, and, and Robert, you would uh, be interested in your, your opinion on this. Records, I always felt, were secondary in the gospel world. Like in, in pop music and rock and roll, records were very important, but but the fact that gospel music existed for... Uh, in the modern gospel music, say from 1932, that you really had very few recordings until after the war, mm-hmm. uh, tells me that gospel was more of a performance music versus a recorded music. Yeah, and there ain't no Archies in gospel music. That's no, right. No sugar, sugar. No sugar, huh? sugar. No, there ain't no studio made up session groups in gospel oh. music. It's either on the on the stage or it's on the page. Right. Well, and in point of fact, when Mahalia Jackson made her first recording in 1937, she was very unhappy with it. And I, I think a lot of it had to do with the fact that it just didn't feel right. It, uh, whether or not we enjoy that performance or not that she did, I think she didn't feel it captured her sound in the way that she knew it to be on the stage. It took her two and a half minutes just to warm up on a song. And two and a half minutes is the max some of those little labels would have to do. That's not true of all the music we're going to be playing today, of course. Right, right. And, and in fact, uh, there was, we talked about the, the, the expense of studio time. Uh, the Swan Silvertones had a marvelous uh, uh, artist named Reverend Robert Crenshaw. But what they didn't like was that he got happy too soon in the song. So he would start <laughs> to shouting. And, and they said, no, 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 you're supposed to wait on that. Well, you, you really can't wait when it's three and a half minutes. <laughs> so were there any gospel groups that on principle just refused to do anything in the studio who said uh, no it's just not going to give you any idea of what we can really do when we're stretching out or 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 were they all thinking this needs to be there too so people can actually hear it Uh, you know my my, the first thing that comes to mind is they probably if they wanted to have a record they did it a lot of groups just simply didn't know how how to go about it but I do think that a lot of groups saw the need to to make a record and did it anyway if nothing else, then just to have something uh, to sell and to give to the local gospel announcers to play. So they probably, even if they felt it didn't quite capture them the right way, they probably made it anyway if they knew how. My favorite gospel track, we're not going to be able to play today for copyright reasons, but it's on the Chris Strathwitz Arhuli 20th anniversary, and it's the Paramount or Paramount Singers. It's an eight-and-a-half-minute shouting song and it's uh i'm not sure how they got to go that long but it gets higher and higher and harder and harder and by the eight end of the eight minutes i'm just totally emotionally exhausted yeah that and in fact um that is one of the things that w- when they started to do live recordings in gospel music that really did capture that so that you started to get more of those extended performances i've always felt that say with the talk about the original five blind boys of mississippi and archie brownlee how wonderful it would have been if we had 12-inch discs, 12-inch mm-hmm. dance discs back then so that you could hear uh, Our Father or um, mm-hmm. one of these songs that were their, their popular songs. 
that they might have how they would have done it in this in performance eight nine minutes yeah and just let Archie shout and and could you imagine what that would have been no like? I can't all I can hear is what people tell me well, Bob and Robert, what I'd like to do now is listen to a different kind of recording. These are particularly fun to look at because they often come in on these huge platters. I'm talking about radio transcriptions, so a particular kind of a live performance where the group would come into a studio and broadcast what they were doing right at that moment. And some of these were recorded and preserved along those lines. This is from a Texas radio station, KGNC in Amarillo, and it's the John Howard Choir. Bob or Robert, either of you know anything about these performers? They toured throughout the Southwest. This 16-inch disc, which on a, a aluminum, is incredibly rare. We are very fortunate here at the Black Gospel Music Restoration Project at Baylor to have uh, one of the few copies I've ever seen that's in a playable condition, and I would they would make a copy and uh, in exchange for singing to do a few uh, ads for other performances they're going to be doing in that area, and it survived remarkably well in somebody's closet for forty years in the back of an old uh, radio station. Those are incredibly rare. Any radio transcriptions of church broadcasts or or the fifteen minute uh, radio programs such as the John Howard Choir may have had, those are extremely rare, and anything you have like that is just, it's gold. Well, let's have a listen to this radio transcription from KGNC in Amarillo. This is the John Howard Choir. Free from care, from labor free, Lord, we would commune with thee. Out of our hearts and into your homes comes the John Howard Choir with our message and song, hoping to cheer some weary soul along the way. For our first number, featuring Miss Victoria McCommon in the choir, I cried and I cried until I found the Lord. I cried and I cried, oh Lord, I cried on my Lord. I cried and I cried until I found the Lord. John Howard Choir, a radio transcription from a performance in KGNC in Amarillo, Texas in 1948. Now, we're hearing something that doesn't sound like drive. It doesn't sound like anything we have heard before in this program. So, Bob Maravich, can you tell us, uh, this sounds like a completely different kind of music. How is this still in the same genre of black gospel music? Well, it's interesting because when I hear the John Howard Choir, they sound like a spitting image of the Wings Over Jordan Choir out of uh, Cleveland, Ohio, right down to the uh, 
the introduction, the narrative introduction over the, the hum and the Wings Over Jordan choir were, were an immensely popular uh, spiritual a choir that sang gospel songs over CBS radio in the 30s and 40s. In fact, people it was so popular that in the black communities, people say you could walk to church and, and catch the entire Wings Over Jordan program just coming out of everyone's windows. Um, and so that's when I hear the John Howard Choir, I hear the tremendous influence of Wings Over Jordan, which again, I think they sang gospel, but they maintained that sort of sp- uh, jubilee or spiritual choir sound. So what is a jubilee sound? Uh, Robert, tell us about the, the jubilee part of black gospel music. Well, jubilee predates what we're calling gospel or black gospel. It's arranged spirituals, first made famous by the Fisk Jubilee Singers as a fundraising effort where they would take the old spirituals and arrange them in SATB, soprano, alto, tenor, bass format. They would stand flat-footed and sing these songs, and it created quite a sensation in the 1880s as they traveled across the U.S. and the U.K., raising money for their struggling historically black college there. This tradition continues well into the uh, 20th century and is finally gives way with Thomas Dorsey into what now we call gospel music. It's the immediate predecessor. And what blurs the uh, the, the genres is that, uh, and I'm not sure about the John Howard Choir, if they had it in their repertory, but the Wings Over Jordan Choir would sing a, a Thomas Dorsey song, When I've Done the Best I Can, and they would do it in... Uh, a very uh, refined style, similar to you know what Robert's saying, uh, a an SATB style, very arranged uh, for part for choir, uh, and then they would sing a spiritual, and uh, and then they might sing a hymn. Uh, it was very different, but it, but my guess is that um, the John Howard Choir was very influenced by the Wings Over Jordan and uh, sort of became a local version of it for, for their area. So was the audience divided over these two very different kinds of music? Would the same people who would tune in to the John Howard Choir or Wings Over Jordan also go out and buy a track by the Sensational Sunset Paraders and, and do some drive uh, as well? Or or did the audience or even the, the critics of the music, let's say, get split over these two very different kinds of sounds? Well, there's certainly a split in the churches. The John Howard Choir could perform in a lot of the black churches where a gospel quartet could not. But as for what you would buy, I don't know, Bob. You know, I only know from the Wings Over Jordan perspective, I think they were so beloved that even the uh, the most avid of quartet fan would tune in Wings Over Jordan on Sunday morning on CBS just to hear black voices on the radio and, and on a nationally syndicated program. But I suspect, um, you know, that uh, for just purchasing the music, that um, as time went on, I think there was probably uh, more and more of a split. I think originally you would probably find individuals buying Wings Over Jordan and uh, a quartet, uh, maybe the Blind Boys or something. But then as time went on, there was much more of a split where you were either kind of in the quartet camp or you were in the gospel camp or the jubilee camp. Depends on your age and your, your uh, upbringing. Um, but, but I always felt that the music was respected. When I started collecting gospel, started doing more in gospel, people always asked me about Wings Over Jordan. It's still on my radio show a big request. So I, I think that there is a special place in everyone's heart for that kind of sound, although I think over the, over the years it was less and less so. Did the question of authenticity to the black experience ever come up? Because I know that uh, the Fisk Jubilee singers had that kind of European classical uh, thread in what they were doing as well as a way of demonstrating that this music was something that actually had 
actual, you know, musical value even for white audiences and so forth. But that that became controversial over the years. Uh, was there was there anything in uh, the community that started to wrestle with that issue of authenticity, or was it something, as you say, that uh, people were just happy to hear black performers being featured? Well, uh, certainly in the in the white community. Uh, this was considered wild and savage music that wasn't even something you wanted genteel young women to hear. And we're talking about standing flat-footed and singing Old Spirituals S.A.T.B. Even the Jubilee music was yes. thought of as savage. And, Amazing. And that's why it was kind of the sensation in, in New England and in, in England itself, because here was these wild, haunting sounds that almost sounded barbaric to the people who grew up with the genteel sound. Now, in the black community, I'm just guessing they're just so thrilled because outside of the minstrel shows, they weren't getting to hear anything outside of their own churches. I'm Bob, jump in here. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I think in certain instances like Wings Over Jordan, there was a tremendous amount of – it was almost – no, I shouldn't say there was almost – there was as much pride – uh, back in the 30s and 40s in the Wings Over Jordan and, say, the John Howard Choir sound as there was in, in uh, you know, uh, uh, Joe Lewis and, 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 and individuals who were considered race uh, pioneers. Um, but there was a split in the church, and that's what kind of brought gospel music along. There, in the 1920s and prior to that, the music of the black church, particularly in the urban areas, was more along the lines of the Fisk Jubilee Singers and the Wings Over Jordan, the John Howard Choir, very refined. It was not unusual in Chicago anyway for the big Baptist church choirs to be professional, to have classically trained artists doing Bach, Beethoven, uh, as well as some of the black composers of the era, uh, and not a shred of gospel, maybe a, maybe a spiritual. In some instances, even spirituals were felt to be mm-hmm. Uh, not to be t- t- it was that was music of slavery. We don't want to talk about that. Mm-hmm. We want to assimilate. We want to become. We want to show that we are as good, if not better, uh, than the, our white counterparts in uh, adopting the, the uh, Western European classical milieu, and um, and that started to change when the when the Great Migration came north. And you had a community of individuals who were disliked by the white community and disliked by the upper middle class black community, and they started to form their own voice, and that's where gospel came in. And that was the big struggle in the 1930s for what predominant music was going to be heard in the black church. Was it going to be this refined Wings Over Jordan Fisk Jubilee sound with the anthems and the hymns, or was it going to be the gospel songs uh, of uh, Dorsey and Fry and Morris? And that means people like Mahalia Jackson spend a lot of her early career singing in storefront churches rather than in Pilgrim's Rest or some of the great big Baptist churches. Now, Pilgrim's Rest is the first, I believe, to have this kind of music because of Dorsey's choir, right? It was actually Ebenezer. Ebenezer, uh, excuse me. Thank you. Yeah, because Pilgrim gets the credit because Dorsey spent so many years there, but it was actually Ebenezer, uh, and uh, it was uh, Theodore Fry who started the choir there. He was asked by Dr. uh, Reverend Dr. Smith to start a, a choir singing those songs like we used to sing down in the Southland, as he said, because Dr. Smith was from uh, Birmingham and uh, Fry was from Mississippi. And uh, Fry couldn't write music, so he uh, got his friend who had been working with Thomas Dorsey to help him with the, playing the piano. And they started a choir in, in late 1931 in Ebenezer. And uh, it, it literally was an overnight success, uh, I think, much to everyone's surprise. To find out how you can help with the Black Gospel Music Restoration Project, visit the project's website at baylor.edu forward slash LIB 
forward slash gospel.